reading is taken from Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that, come, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 
7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <coughs> well, Sally may only have had to read two chapters, but I'm going to preach through all four of them. It's 25 to 7 now, so... Um, turn back with you to chapter 8 and verse 1. In his very helpful exposition of the book of Revelation, John Stott, when he gets to this section, writes... It is generally agreed that chapters 8 to 11 are difficult to interpret. <laughs> Thanks, John. There's a real help. Now, there are too many details to explain all the details, <clears throat> so I'm going to try and go for the broad sweep of these four chapters. When it comes to the details, and some of them are quite puzzling, I mean, the 42 months and the 1,260 days, things like that, when you come to a detail like that, the big clue is always think Old Testament. All right, think Old Testament. 42 days, or 1260 days, or three and a half years, or sometimes three and a half days, is quite frequent in the book of Revelation. It's probably a reference back to the three and a half years during which the heavens were shut and there was no rain during the ministry of Elijah. So always think Old Testament, and, well, you'll see as we go on, it helps. <coughs> now then, <coughs> we need to remember that the series of seven seals that we looked at last time, seven trumpets this time, and then there's a third series of seven bowls or plagues that are poured out, uh, they're not consecutive. It's not that what the seals represent is going to happen in human history, and then what the trumpets represent, and then what the bowls represent. They're not uh, consecutive, they're simultaneous. The writer is recapping constantly, going back to the beginning and looking at the whole of human history, but from a different perspective. Each of these series portrays the whole period of time between Christ's two comings. And actually, when you look at each series, it seems that within each series, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are simultaneous. So when we look at the trumpets, it's not what's described in trumpet one is going to happen at some point in history, and then later in history what's described in trumpet two is going to happen, and so on. They're all happening all the time, except for the last of the trumpets, which describes the final judgment. So the first six trumpets depict what is going on throughout history, rather than a sequence of events within it. Now the first four trumpets come in chapter eight. They're pretty horrific, and taken together, they describe what we would probably call today something like environmental destruction. The world is all but destroyed, and it ends in darkness. And it's not global warming or green issues or anything like that, but it is interesting, isn't it? These things, we're told in Revelation, these things will happen, and then when they happen, people say, well, where's God? And yet God has said these things will happen. When you look at them, actually, they, they seem to echo the, the plagues on Egypt in the book of Exodus. There seem to be deliberate echoes of the plagues on Egypt. Um, hail, for example. Uh, the sea being turned into blood. And various 
most other details, seem to recall the Exodus. And the stage is set in chapter 8, verses 2 to 6. <coughs> John sees the seven angels who stand before God, and they're given seven trumpets. <coughs> and then another angel comes with a golden censer, and he stands at the altar. He's given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. These prayers are ascending to heaven, the prayers of God's people on earth. Then, verse 5, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, in response to the prayers of God's people, God's judgment is poured out upon the earth. And, of course, the plagues on Egypt were God's judgments on Egypt and on the gods of Egypt. So these terrible plagues, this environmental destruction, represents God's judgment on this world. But it is not the final judgment, because in each case it's only a third of the earth or the sea or the sky or whatever. It's only a third that's destroyed. That's not a literal number, it just means a large amount, but not most. Now again, we see things like tsunamis and earthquakes and wars and destruction. And we're tempted to say, where is God? Or is there a God? And we ought to be saying, these are the judgments of a holy God upon a rebellious and sinful world. That's the first four trumpets. And then at the end of the sequence of those four trumpets, in chapter 8, verse 13... Uh, an eagle appears in mid-air. It could be an eagle or it could be a vulture. If it's a vulture, that gives a slightly different feel to it, doesn't it? And he cries out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. So that immediately draws our attention to the next three trumpets, which are described in more length. And each one of them is a woe to the inhabitants of the earth. So let's work through those three trumpets. First, the fifth trumpet, the first woe, is described in chapter 9 and verses 1 to 12. What happens here is that a star falls from the sky to the earth. And it seems to recall the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 10, verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this star is given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And he opens the abyss, and out of it comes smoke, so that the sun and the sky are darkened. And out of the smoke, locusts come down upon the earth. Now these are not ordinary locusts. As they're described, they look like horses, and they sting like scorpions. And I think they represent the demonic powers that Satan has let loose upon the earth. Sometimes when we see terrible things going on, we say, it's as if all hell has been let loose. And actually that is exactly what has happened. All hell has been let loose. Now notice that the, the star, this, uh, the devil is given a key. And he's not usurping God's authority. He's not acting in t- 
total defiance of God, as if he's a completely free agent who can do as he likes. He's allowed to do it. He's given the key. Ultimately, God is still in control, even of this. And notice in verse 4, who it is that these scorpions harm. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now that's a reference back to chapter 6. Well, I can't remember what verse it was, but there's a reference there to God's saints being sealed. Now as these demonic powers torment the unbelieving, unrepentant, unconverted, unchristian world that doesn't believe in Jesus. That's the first woe. The sixth trumpet and the second woe comes in chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. Here we discover that four angels of death are released. Um, Where is it? Chapter 9, verse 14. The voice uh, from heaven said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And then there's this enigmatic statement. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. And then these horsemen are described. Again, they've been kept for this very hour and day and month and year. Precise time in God's plan and control of history. But the horses, as they're described, have snakes for tails. And the way they're described seems to recall the locusts. They're not the same as the locusts, but they seem very similar. And I think it may be that they represent the the human counterpart to the demonic forces that we saw in the fifth trumpet. The human counterpart. When you see things like the photographs from Belson, you cannot help but say, this is demonic, though it was done by humans. I think it's that that is pictured here, the human counterpart, the human forces that carry out demonic activities. These horsemen kill, whereas the locusts could only torment. That is very grim, isn't it? This is a terrible picture. Remember what Revelation is doing? It's drawing back the veil on reality. We look at the world and most of the time we think it's pretty nice. John here, or rather I should say the risen Lord Jesus Christ, is drawing back the veil on our world and saying, this is the reality. We live in a world that is under the judgment of Almighty God who made it. And it's not just that there is a final judgment at the end of history. Already within history, God's judgments are working. Now if you look at the the final eight, chapter 9, verses 20 and 21... You see what the purpose of these dreadful plagues is. It is to bring mankind to repentance. But it does not work. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They didn't stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. 
idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, their hearts are hardened. And as each judgment falls, instead of repenting, they just harden themselves even more against God. So it doesn't bring men to repentance. Something else is needed to bring men to repentance. And we'll see what it is when we come to chapters 10 and 11. But first I want to jump to the seventh trumpet, the third woe, which is in chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, that is, angry with God, and your wrath has come. Time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now this seems to be the end. This seems to be the final judgment. Look, for example, at the description of God in verse 17. The one who is and who was. Usually it's the one who is and who was and who is to come. But it isn't who is to come here because he has come. It is the end. The time for judging the dead and for rewarding God's servants. So that's the seventh trumpet, the third woe, the final judgment. All the plagues then characterize history right up to the end. People do not repent and judgment is coming. And these judgments within history point forward to the final great judgment. But something else is happening that is simultaneous with all this. And it's symbolized by the vision of chapters 10 and 11. The angel with the little scroll in chapter 10 and the temple and the two witnesses in chapter 11. And this is where we come into the picture. Because these visions represent our task and the task of the church in this world that is under God's judgment. First then, the angel with the little scroll, chapter 10. And it seems to me that this is actually a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I'm persuaded of this by John Stott, who writes, it is evident that he is no mere angel. John seems to have deliberately assembled a number of divine features in his description. In particular, his face, shining like the sun, and his legs like fiery pillars, recalls the vision of the risen Lord Jesus in chapter 1. That's how he was described in chapter 1. The cloud and the rainbow in the Old Testament depict God's presence and his glory. The feet of this angel are planted one on the land and one on the sea, symbolically, so that all things are under his feet. And he speaks with the roar of a lion, echoing Amos chapter 3 verse 8. The lion 
has roared, the sovereign Lord has spoken. Now that's true, it fits well with the appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we're often told of an appearance of the angel of the Lord. And in most instances, there's a narrative, and as the narrative unfolds, the angel of the Lord and the Lord are used interchangeably. For example, Moses at the burning bush. We're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses from the midst of the bush. And Moses goes over to have a look, and we're then told that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. So who is it that Moses sees in the burning bush? Is it the angel of the Lord, or is it God himself? A clearer example is in Judges, when uh, Gideon is visited by an angel who is giving him his call to lead the Israelite armies against the Midianites. The angel of the Lord, we're told, appeared and sat under an oak tree and spoke to Gideon. But as the story unfolds, it keeps saying, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said to Gideon. Now that could just be a device because it's God speaking through his angel. But at one point, we're told, the angel says something to Gideon, Gideon says something in reply, and then the text says, then the Lord turned to Gideon. It must be a reference to the figure that Gideon can see, and the figure is clearly called the Lord. So there's this ambiguity in the Old Testament. Is it the angel, as we would think of an angel, or is it actually an appearance of the Lord himself? It just struck me that uh, there's an example in the book of Revelation. If you turn back to chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 1, John tells us this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must take place soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Okay? Now who is it actually that is then sent to John? Who is it that John then sees? The figure that's described is unmistakably the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I think John Stott is right when he says that this is no mere angel, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John takes a little scroll from him and eats it. And this recalls the experience of the prophet Ezekiel, who was also given a little scroll, and he ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in his mouth. And similarly, John is told, like Ezekiel, to prophesy, that is to preach. Now, if you recall, the ministry of Ezekiel was very much a ministry of warning. God kept saying to Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman, and you are to warn Israel of the judgment that is coming. If you warn them, and they repent and turn from their sins, they will live. But if you do not warn them, I will require their blood of your hand. You will be responsible because you did not warn them. That was Ezekiel's ministry. I think the little scroll here represents the gospel. But while the gospel is a wonderful promise, it is also a warning. Because if God's forgiveness is rejected and his kingdom is spurred, 
The only alternative is judgment. And maybe that is why it turns sour in his stomach. Because what John is picturing here is the world that will not repent, the world that refuses to believe the gospel and turn to Christ. So that though it is sweet in his mouth, it is sour in his stomach. Well, then we have the temple and the two witnesses. And taken together, they are a vision of Christ's church. Chapter 10, here is the Lord Jesus Christ himself handing the gospel to his servants. And at chapter 11, we have a vision of Christ's church. First, the temple and its worshippers in verses 1 and 2. The temple is measured, and the worshippers there are counted. And I think they represent God's people on earth. The temple represents God's presence. And it is specifically the sanctuary here, the innermost part of the temple and not the whole building, signifying the security of God's people in his presence here on earth. And that's why they're counted. Like the 144,000, God knows all his elect, and they're all numbered and known to him. So it is a powerful symbol of spiritual security. The Gentiles trample the outer court of the temple and the holy city. And I think that represents the hostility of the unrepentant world. Now the two witnesses take up much more space and they symbolize the church's mission to the world. You'll see in verse 4 that they are identified with two further symbols. And again, here's an example of where we need to think Old Testament. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. You immediately say, what two olive trees and what two lampstands? And the answer comes from Zechariah chapter 4, where Zechariah sees a vision of the temple and he sees the great seven-branched golden lampstand that's in the temple. And he also sees two olive trees. And he asks, who do these two olive trees represent? And he's told, they represent my servants. Now the lampstand is there burning, and the two olive trees are right next to it, as if to say there is a permanent supply of olive oil for the lampstand, so that the lampstand will never be put out. Zechariah sees this in the context of Israel's exile. The temple is going to be destroyed, and the lampstand is going to disappear, never to come back. But spiritually, the lampstand will never go out. Israel's witness to the nations will be preserved. And John seems to be saying something like that here. The two lampstands recall chapters 1 to 3, where we were told that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But the seven churches stand for all the churches. So here too, I think these two lampstands are the churches, but the two churches stand for all the churches. Why only two? Well, it's been suggested that it could be because of the requirement of the Old Testament law for testimony to be established on the basis of two witnesses. I think probably it's simply that John has got Zechariah 4 in his mind and there were two witnesses in Zechariah 4. It's as simple as that. 
but they symbolize the church's witness supplied by permanently with oil. And verse 6 uh, suggests that these men are Elijah and Moses. Again, think Old Testament. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. That's Elijah. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. That's Moses in the Exodus. Now, why Elijah and Moses? Well, they were the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. They both appeared with Jesus at his transfiguration. But I think what John is saying is that the church's testimony to the gospel, though it may appear weak, though the lampstand may appear to be guttering and about to go out, the church's testimony to the gospel is like the giving of the law through Moses. It's as important and significant and momentous as that. And it is like the preaching of Elijah. It is as powerful and as effective as that. The church's witness to the gospel is of a piece with God's word through Elijah and Moses. But what response do the two witnesses meet and what happens to them? The beast comes up from the abyss and attacks them and overpowers them and kills them. The beast will be identified later in the book of Revelation. Their bodies lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now that suggests that it's a reference to Jerusalem, as though the persecution of the early church will come from there. But in the book of Revelation, the great city always refers to Babylon. And Babylon, in turn stands for the city of Rome. And I think that is what John has in mind here, because it is from Rome that the persecution of the church in John's day was coming. It was Rome that was putting to death the witnesses of Christ. It's figuratively called Sodom, which stands for sexual immorality, and Egypt, which stands for oppression and persecution. But if it was Rome in John's day, it could be somewhere else in our day. The great city is any city where immorality is rife and where gospel witness is stamped upon to try and crush it. Anywhere where Christ is crucified metaphorically. It's not very encouraging, is it? And yet that is the normal experience of most Christians throughout history and still of most Christians throughout the world today. Our experience of peace is not normal and it may not last. Already we're beginning to see hostility and hatred towards the church and the Christian message in a way that wasn't seen even ten years ago. And who knows what the future may be. Ultimately, however, the two witnesses are vindicated by their resurrection and ascension to heaven. So that the church militant here on earth, oppressed and suffering, becomes the church triumphant in heaven, glorious and victorious.
It's what the prisoner understood when he read the book of Revelation. Remember that I told you that story of the very first sermon? The man was converted through Alpha in prison. He started reading his Bible. The prison chaplain said, well, you know, he told the prison chaplain he was reading his Bible. The chaplain said, well, what are you reading? He said, well, he's, I thought I'd start at Genesis, but I thought it would take me too long to get through the Bible, so I thought I'd begin at the end, and I'm reading the book of Revelation. The chaplain wondered, well, on earth he was making of it, brand new Christian, no church background, never read the Bible in his life, said, how are you getting on with it? Well, he said, there's a lot I don't understand, but I think the message is this, we're going to win in the end. And John has painted a very bleak picture. He wants us to be realists and not triumphalists. So he paints this rather bleak picture of what the church's experience in this world will be. But there is victory and triumph at the end. So let's sum up. What does all this teach us? I think there's one main message summed up by John Stott's title for this section, Christ Calling the World to Repentance. Christ Calling the World to Repentance. The plagues that follow the trumpets call the world to repent, for they are warnings of the judgment to come. And the mission of the church is to witness to the gospel of repentance. fascinating. I, I just looked up yesterday afternoon, actually. I thought, well, is, is that, I thought to myself, is that actually what they preached in the Acts of the Apostles? So I had a quick skim through all the sermons in the Acts of the Apostles, and it's fascinating. They preach the gospel in different ways. Sometimes they focus on Jesus' resurrection. Sometimes they focus on something else. But the, whatever, whatever the sort of content, the main part of the sermon is, the punchline is always the same in every single case. Repent very striking. I'd not noticed it before. I just, just because of this passage in Revelation, I thought, I'll just check and see if that is actually what they did in, in the Acts of the Apostles. But I take it that the book of Acts is there to show us how we are to preach the gospel. So we must call men and women to repent. The world will respond exactly as the world does respond when we do this. It is not a popular message. But God's people are all safely counted in his temple. The church's lampstand will never run out of oil. There is a glorious resurrection ahead of us, and God will reward his servants. So let's let our punchline tonight be chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That will be said on the last great day. It's not the truth yet, but it will be the truth then. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he 